came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. All right, well, good morning once again, everyone. Um, this morning we have uh, a great joy and opportunity to have a guest preacher with us, and I want to just give you a brief introduction about him. Uh, this is uh, Pastor Stephen Tan, and uh, he is a senior pastor of Grace Christian Church of the Philippines in Manila, and he's also the chaplain of Grace Christian College. Uh, pastor Tan grew up in Dallas, and um, he went to Dallas uh, Theological Seminary, uh, where he got um, his Master of Theology and Doctor of Ministry from there as well. And uh, he's been in Manila now for, I think, 14 years, right? Yeah, so he's been there for uh, quite a while, and God has really put his hand upon uh, that ministry, and it's really uh, been flourishing and growing. And uh, so it was just a real encouragement last night to have dinner and to hear more about what God is doing in that part of the world. Um, Dr. Or Reverend Tan is, um, yeah, he is happily married to his wife, Cindy, and they have three children, Andrew, Nathan, and Janelle. So um, this morning, once again, uh, we are very uh, honored and uh, we're grateful to have uh, Reverend Tan uh, come and share God's word with us. So let's uh, please give him a warm welcome. Well, good morning. What a privilege it is for me to be able to come and uh, share at CFC. Thank you to Pastor Ng and Pastor Park for this uh, privilege of being here. I first heard about your church uh, in Shanghai, China of all places. Uh, in fact, I was there uh, speaking at a church and met a young man named Andrew Fang. I think some of you know him, uh, him and his wife, Jeanette, and uh, they told me about their home church here at CEFC and, uh, and heard wonderful things about the community here. And so praise God for the work you guys are doing uh, and in sending out missionaries and with STM going out to East Asia. Praise the Lord for the sending church. Um, for those of you uh, who want to get to know me a little bit more, uh, I am ethnically Chinese. I was born in the Philippines, but I grew up in Texas. So that makes me very culturally confused most of the time. I'm not sure where to fit in. And uh, in terms of a life story, I told God that uh, there are three no's in my life. I uh, told him that these uh, especially growing up as a pastor's kid, I told the Lord I never want to be a pastor. I told the Lord I never want to marry someone Asian. I was very anti-Asian growing up in Texas. And the third thing, I said, I never ever want to live in Asia again. Uh, well, as someone has said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Uh, and so uh, it's been a joy to be out in the Philippines these past 14 years and to see God's hand of a blessing at the, a very strategic place in the world, the only free country in Southeast Asia uh, where we can build networks into creative access nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and uh, uh, again, it's a privilege to be here. Uh, someone once posed this question to me, and uh, it's stuck in my head for these past few decades. 
Suppose someone were to offer you a thousand U.S. dollars for every person you and I would earnestly try to lead to Christ. Would you endeavor to lead any more souls to Him than what you are endeavoring to do now? Essentially, if someone were to pay you to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, would that cause you to share more about Jesus than what you are doing now? The truth be told, if we're honest with ourselves, the motivation for us to evangelize isn't much uh, reality in the everyday life that we live. If someone were to offer us $1,000, I'm sure every one of us would be motivated to do the work of the Great Commission. Michael Parrott, uh, in uh, some evangelistic uh, statistics, notes that in his survey, 95% of all Christians have never won a soul for Jesus Christ. 80% of all Christians do not consistently witness for Christ. Less than 2% are involved in the ministry of evangelism. And in one denominational survey of its leadership, 63% of the leaders, elders, pastors, and deacons, have not led one person to Christ in the last two to three years. And yet, as we just read in our scripture reading, the great commission of Jesus Christ is to go out into all the world to share the good news of salvation, to give to everyone the opportunity to receive Christ. And because the Great Commission is given to all of us, we all have a title of evangelist, one who shares the good news. But for many people, being an evangelist is a role we don't feel we can put on ourselves. We feel that uh, it's not something that we are called to do. An evangelist is someone else. We don't feel we're ready to share. In fact, uh, throughout these past few 30 decades or so, there have been a lot of techniques that have uh, been created to allow us to be better evangelists, whether it's uh, evangelism explosion uh, or the four spiritual laws of crew or campus crusade or one verse evangelism or the bridge of life illustration of the navigators or the Roman road where you lead someone to Christ using the book of Romans. And yet with so many techniques that have come into play in these past 50 years, I wonder if more of us are actually evangelizing. Now we can argue about the effectivity of evangelism uh, or these techniques in today's 21st century environment and in our generation, but at the core, evangelism is not about technique or training, although both technique and training do help in effective communication of the gospel to others. We go back to the time of the early church, and we recognize that there wasn't a formal training per se for one uh, who wants to be an evangelist. Those in the early church had a passion and a fervor, and their evangelistic fervor sets forth the foundation of what we are to do to be effective evangelists, to bring, to bring forth this amazing great news of Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection for us as sinners to a world that is very much in need of hope. I want to bring you this morning back to the basics of what an old-fashioned evangelist looks like. How can we be present-day, old-fashioned evangelists? This morning, I'd like you to turn your Bibles with me to the book of Acts. I know that you as a church are going through the book of Acts, and you're now at Acts chapter 8. And we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 8, and then verses 26 to 39, centering on the person of Philip the evangelist and his effective ministry of evangelism. Now, as you're turning to the book of Acts uh, chapter 8, 
Let's take a look at the background and the context in which Philip was operating in. I read from Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Now Saul was consenting to his death, that being the death of Stephen. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And the devout man carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. In verses 1 to 3, you get an idea of the setting of what was happening in the early church, specifically in Jerusalem. It was a time of great persecution. And if you identified yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ, you could have been stoned like Stephen. Most likely you were dragged out of your homes and put into prison regardless of your gender. It was a time when no one in their right mind would want to be associated with being a Christian, much less clearly identifying himself as one. Because you don't know who would turn you in to the religious authorities who would then persecute you. That's why the Bible tells us they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Only the apostles stayed in Jerusalem because perhaps they thought it was essential that they stay and while the others should leave. Perhaps the authorities didn't bother the apostles because of their status. Whatever the case, the Bible tells us very clearly many left Jerusalem to the surrounding countries. Now, it wasn't that they were running scared. It was that they weren't dumb enough to stick around so that they could be imprisoned or hurt. As Christians, we're told to be bold in our faith, but we're also to be wise, to use our brains, and you don't stay around to be easily captured or beaten up. You use wisdom. How do I know that these believers were not running away because they were scared? I want you to look at the next verse, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Because as they were being scattered, the Bible tells us they preached the Word of God. They used the occasion of being forced to leave Jerusalem as an opportunity to do more evangelistic work. And now we are introduced to one of those who was scattered and preached the gospel where he went. Look at verses 5 to 8. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was, note this, great joy in that city. This is the Philip that is one of the deacons, one of the seven chosen along with Stephen to serve the church. This is not the Philip who was one of the 12 apostles. Here was a lay leader who was in the midst of serving those in the church, preaching Christ to the people of Samaria. And the Bible tells us this lay evangelist had a very effective ministry, especially in the city of Samaria, where when they received the message of the good news of Jesus, there was joy in the city. Now, the reason I stress that this is the Philip, not of the 12 apostles, but the Philip, one of the seven deacons, is that I'm showing you that here is a man who was not a church leader. Here is not a man who was recognized as one of the 12. An ordinary man called to serve the church. 
The Bible tell, doesn't tell us he was eloquent. The Bible doesn't tell us he was charismatic in his personality. Some Bible simply introduces Philip as the one who preached Christ to them in verse 5. Here we see that as an effective evangelist, of which we are all called to be, we need to overcome our fear in order to share Jesus with others. Philip overcame his fear in the midst of being scattered from Jerusalem to share Christ with others. The reason he was an effective evangelist was number one, if you're taking notes, he overcame his fear in order to share. There will be fear, there's always fear when it comes to sharing Jesus because we simply don't know the outcome of our conversation and our invitation. Every time I invite people to come to know Christ, I get scared. I get scared because I don't know whether anyone will respond. And I'm fearful that if no one responds, maybe that's an indication of my ability. I get scared because somehow in the person of who I am, if no one responds by the raising of hand or coming forward, then maybe I'm not an effective communicator. And the fear, of course, is unfounded because the work of conviction is the Holy Spirit. And yet we are fearful even to share Christ. We don't know if our friends will ask us questions that we can't answer. We don't know if our friends know the scriptures more than we do and challenge us in areas that we can't respond. In fact, in the case of Philip, we don't know if we will be persecuted for sharing the gospel and by identifying ourselves as Christian. And that's why so few people in this generation today are willing to share the gospel. Perhaps it's high time that our generation, young and old, needs to say what needs to be said with fear and grace, with love and grace, because we can't continue to be silent because of fear. People often ask me, how do you get a church to grow? It's so simple. You evangelize. It's not going to get any easier in our post-Christian world. While it may not be like the time of the early church in Jerusalem, we're certainly being persecuted through, our, through rejection and ridicule because of our beliefs and our biblical stance that we take. In fact, a few years ago, two years ago, I was in post-Christian Europe, and Europe is very much post-Christian. In the Netherlands, I'd been invited to speak about biblical teachings on culturally controversial subjects like marriage and homosexuality. A church leader came up to me and told me that I had to be very careful when I speak on such taboo subjects because if someone in the audience was to have been offended by the message and they complained to the authorities, then I could be charged with inciting hate speech. This is Europe today. What does America look like in a few years? I don't know. But this is the world we live in where the expression of your belief grounded in the Word of God and what it teaches is slowly becoming hate speech. And so first and foremost, to be effective evangelists, we need to overcome our fear of rejection and ridicule, or else we will never be able to share the gospel with love and grace. Just know that when you go out there that the world has already rejected you. 
The scriptures remind us that the gospel is an affront to the people of this world. If you don't get over your fear, you and I will be frozen in fear. And when that happens, you and I can't do anything. I remember when I moved to the Philippines 14 years ago, I was introduced to a dish, a food dish called sisig. Are you familiar with sisig? Uh, if you ever go to a Filipino restaurant, uh, you may want to try out sisig. Well, of course, naturally, uh, if I'm not sure what it is, my first question is, what is it? So I asked them, what is this pork sisig that you're offering me uh, and which you tell me is very delicious? Oh, they said, Pastor, you, you'll love it. It's a dish made out of the pig's head, uh, specifically the, the pork jaws and the ears and a lot of things we don't know, but it's, it's a very delicious dish. I wouldn't touch that dish with a two-feet pole. I, I, was, I, was, I was scared. I was honestly scared for such a strange dish being offered to me. In fact, it's very interesting. In the menus in the Philippines, when they have sisig on the menu, they never explain what it is because it's such an awful-sounding dish. Would you like chopped-up pig's face? Of course not. Well, when I finally, because out of cultural sensitivity, got over my fear of eating it, and by the way, I'm not comparing eating sisig with evangelism, but when you get over your fear of eating it, it's now one of my favorite dishes to the consternation of my wife because it's such an unhealthy dish uh, full of cholesterol. But you know, whenever you get over a fear of doing something, you may come to the realization it's not too bad. You may come to the realization, you know, I, I'm actually pretty good at it. I may actually enjoy it. That's why the evil one loves to use fear to prevent believers from sharing the gospel. He makes us think of the worst case scenario that will happen that we would not take the first step in sharing Christ in our circle of friends. And because we never get over our fear, we never learn the joy that comes with sharing Christ. We never even try it. That's how it is in church, I know. When you're called to teach, when you're called to work with young people, when you're called to work with the youth, you're frozen with fear. And then when you finally get over your fear, you find out that you really enjoy it. You're good at it. God has gifted you in this area. Those who are effective evangelists are not the most eloquent, but they have simply overcome their fear to share the good news. In a time of social and cultural persecution, are you brave enough to overcome your fear of a world that has already rejected us to share the good news of Jesus Christ? I'd like you to jump down with me to verse 26. Verse 26, look with me as I read. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go towards the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So Philip arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge over all of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet, and the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. The Bible tells us that Philip, guided by the Spirit of God through a messenger, perhaps an angel, was told to travel along the road that spans Jerusalem to Gaza to meet the coastal highway, which then went south. And Philip followed the leading of the Lord. 
And while he was traveling along the road, there was an Ethiopian traveling along the same road, most likely in a caravan, traveling south, leaving Jerusalem, heading back to his own country. Now here in the Bible, if you read about an Ethiopian or someone from Ethiopia, it's not referring to the modern-day country of Ethiopia, but to a country or a kingdom that was uh, flourishing in the ancient Near East, what is now modern-day Egypt and Sudan between the cities of Aswan and Khartoum. And this Ethiopian was a very high royal official in charge of the treasury of Queen Candace, a historical figure. Evidently, he was familiar with the one true God, Yahweh, and was worshiping God in Jerusalem, but was not yet a believer in Jesus Christ. How he came to know about Yahweh or be interested in knowing more about him, we are not told. But somehow he's able to secure a scroll of the Old Testament book of Isaiah and was reading it. And the Spirit of God, again, the Bible tells us, prompted Philip to go near to this Ethiopian's chariot, which he does. I want to stop here and I want to note something. If you want to be an effective evangelist, all of us are called to be an evangelist, you and I need to be sensitive to the leading of the Lord to share with others. An evangelist is led by the Lord to share with others. We forget at times that sharing the gospel is not cookie cutter. You say these verses in sequence, under the right condition, perhaps with some soothing music playing in the background, and that person will respond to Jesus. A plus B does not equal C. The work of evangelism is a work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the people. That's why I think so few people do it, because we give up control in the process. We can't control the process of someone's conversion. We want to trust in our own abilities. We want it so that whenever we give out this canned speech, that someone will respond. And yet the Bible tells us that it is the leading of the Lord that makes us effective evangelists. To be an evangelist is to be one who is a person who's humble, humble enough to realize that one must trust God if you want to know the real lesson of trusting God and, and walking by faith, you need to be an evangelist. Then you'll know what it means to walk a life of faith and trust. And the leading of the Lord is always so beautiful as he sets forth divine appointments, as he directs us to interact with people whose hearts he has prepared to trust in him. That's why I, in our home church, I, I love preparing the passages to preach seven to ten months in advance. We preach our Bible, as you guys do, systematically and sequentially, not knowing every week who will be coming. I can't tell you how many times I preach the message, and the congregation is angry at me. I'll get an angry letter every now and then. My friend must have told you I was coming today. Did my spouse talk to you? Were you directing that message at me? I said, no. It's been in the books for 10 months. A few weeks ago, uh, we were going through the parables of Jesus and uh, preached on the parable of the prodigal son. There were three people in the congregation who had not stepped foot in the church in more than 10 years. And some may say, coincidentally, stepped in to hear a sermon that would touch the heart. There is no coincidence in the divine appointment of God. God leads, and we just sit back. 
we're faithful to our work, and we watch him at work. So my friends, if, if the Spirit of God is prompting you to talk to someone, and specifically to talk to them about Jesus, then you and I need to do it. God is setting up divine appointments for you every single day, whether you realize it or not. You and I need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading to talk to the person because you never know how ready they are. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 14 reminds us, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Surprisingly, we are the instruments by which God conveys the truth of the gospel. While God alone changes hearts, when he prompts us to talk, we better be ready to share. Because you never know if your willingness to share, just to open your mouth, will lead someone to Christ. Or if you invite someone, if you could pray for them, you never know how they would respond. The problem is you and I will never know if we make, never take the initiative. But how exciting it is to know that if God prompts us, exciting things will happen. An effective evangelist is led by the Lord to share Jesus with others. Look with me at verses 30 to 31. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. Prompted by the Spirit and sensitive to the Spirit, Philip ran to the chariot which was carrying the Ethiopian high official. And he didn't shout at him, Do you know where you would be if you were to die today? Would you be in heaven or hell? which is what one of the techniques asks us to ask others. If you're not sure, would you like to accept Christ today? But I want you to notice in verses 30 to 31 what Philip does. The Bible tells us Philip listens. He hears that the Ethiopian man is reading from the book of Isaiah and sensitive to the situation of the man who is trying to understand the scriptures, asks the question, do you understand what you are reading? When was the last time you and I started an evangelistic conversation with the phrase, do you understand what you are reading? Having listened to the man, Philip knew perhaps that he had questions in his mind, and what a wonderful lead-in with an invitation to come sit with him. Sometimes when you ask the right questions, after you have listened it solicits from that person an invitation to talk about matters of faith. When you don't take the time to listen or are sensitive to the situation, then you get into trouble. How would you respond if someone were to ask you, what's your view on homosexuality? How would you respond? I think most Christians, having grown up in North America in a typical Chinese church, we'd begin with, well, the Bible says this, 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 and this, and uh, that's it. I've been asked that question a lot, especially in Southeast Asia. You know what my response is? My response is, why do you ask? Why do you ask? Because we don't know if that person who's asking that question is struggling with same gender attraction. I don't know if that person who's asking me that question as a child who came out to the family 
and they're trying to justify loving that child and struggling with their faith. When I've replied with that, it gives me the context by which to give the biblical answer crafted with love and grace. But sometimes we forget to listen as Christians. Growing up in the church, in Sunday school, we're so adamant, the Bible says this, and therefore it is such. I agree, absolutely. But one must be sensitive to the situation and ask the right question. In Asia, uh, for those of you who uh, go to Asia, you recognize that when you're there, the boundaries that we have in North America are not there. And so they ask you how much you make. They ask you, or they, they don't ask you, they tell you, you're fat. And so when I come back from this North American trip, many in our church will say, well, pastor, you, you've gained a little weight. I remember the first time I came to the Philippines as I was uh, preaching that first weekend uh, and at the back shaking hands with the congregation as they walked out. Someone literally came and rubbed my stomach. <laughs> I wanted to say, excuse me, personal boundary space. Uh, I came to understand that these were uh, cultural terms of endearment, I guess. Uh, and, and so I, I've adjusted to the culture and nothing really offends me now. And so I remember that I, I, I've also tried to get to know the people in my congregation, uh, dropping North American boundaries and uh, trying to show that I, I'm concerned about their life. And unfortunately, on three occasions, that's gotten me into trouble. You see, never make an assumption about people without being sensitive to the situation. And I learned very quickly, it's never a good idea to ask a married woman how many months you are pregnant. If they don't volunteer that information or you are not sure, 100% sure, because on those three occasions, they were not pregnant. I learned very quickly, there are also boundaries in Asia. I remember uh, two weeks ago, I was flying to Malaysia with my wife and uh, checking into the plane to fly to Malaysia. The counter check-in lady asked Cindy, my wife, I'm sorry, for security purposes, are you pregnant? Uh, to which my wife, with a very quick wit, answered her back, no, I'm just fat. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to laugh as I saw the face of the check-in agent because she couldn't say anything else. Asking the right questions brings with it an invitation to talk about matters of faith. Asking the wrong questions or making a statement without sensitivity to the situation is what we call a conversation killer. That's it. You see, an effective evangelist must be sensitive to the situation and ask the right question. And here, Philip simply asks, do you understand what you are reading? And the Bible tells us at the end of verse 31, come, sit with me. I know it's easier for me as a pastor. I'll ask someone, what's your occupation? I know that they will reciprocate and ask me what my occupation is, and that gives me a, a bridge or doorway into sharing Jesus. But you and I all have that same opportunity, whether you're in the ministry as a pastor or not. You can talk to people about matters of faith. You just have to know how to turn the conversation spiritual, sensitive to the situation, asking the right questions naturally. 
Ray, Randy Raysbrook, the navigator, writes in an article in Discipleship Journal, giving some pointers for how one finds a common ground. Be natural. Be natural, please, Christians. When you're sharing Jesus, please be natural. I've seen Christians try to share Jesus, and they go into a robotic state. Be natural. Normal conversation is fluid. It is respectful. It allows for humor. It's okay to laugh. It invites response. Be open and willing to admit your struggles and failure. Admit that you have doubts sometime, that you don't have all the answers that you don't know. I teach in seminary, and I tell our theologians, our students of theology, I tell them two of the best answers of any great Bible scholar is, I, I don't know, and I can't answer that. Be respectful. Look at people for what they are as well as what they can become. Be simple. Communication increases as simplicity does. Don't let Christian jargon get in the way. We all speak Christianese. We forget that non-believers don't understand. Do you know that's why in the early church, Christians were persecuted? They didn't understand. Christians of the early church were thought to be incestuous. They say, what in the world? How would Christians be incestuous? Well, you think about it. What do we call each other here at the church? Brother and sister. And so if Joe's going to invite his friend Henry to his wedding, and Joe's a Christian, he says to Henry, Hey, Henry, I want you to come to my wedding. I'm going to marry Sister Sue. Uh, the Romans at the time thought, we're debaucherous, but we don't marry our siblings. And so... The apologist, if you like church history, the apologist of the early church had to write these polemics to explain that, no, Christians aren't incestuous. Oh, the early church, first 200 years, thought that Christians were cannibals. We eat people, really? Well, think about the language we use. I'd like to invite you to, to our house church, and we're going to have a, a love feast. We're going to have a meal. And after uh, our meal, don't be surprised, but we're going to eat and drink the bod body and blood of Jesus. No wonder the Roman world thought that they were cannibals. Our language, we've got to understand, often confuses the non-believing world. Don't let Christian jargon get in the way. Don't forget what it's like to be a non-believer. We can go on and on, but be sensitive. Look at verses 32 to 35. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began, beginning at this scripture, preach Jesus to him. The Ethiopian high official was reading from Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 on the suffering servant and, and, and didn't understand if Isaiah was talking about himself or someone else. Philip was able to explain how Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant. Philip must have been well-versed in the scriptures, imagining starting a gospel presentation from the book of Isaiah. When was the last time you and I did that? But he did. The book of Romans and Ephesians and John wasn't perhaps available or written then. You and I must be well-versed in the Bible. 
It doesn't mean you have to be Bible experts, but you and I need to know more about the Bible. And it's getting harder and harder in our biblical, illiterate world. People don't know the books of the Bible. They don't know the stories and the teachings of the Bible. And here's the main difference in a previous generation and compared to ours. There is no effort to learn it. But an effective evangelist knows the power of the Word of God. I am a firm believer, and I know your churches, in the power of God's Word. I love how you read Scripture here. I recently had uh, someone come and was wanting to write an article uh, about various churches in the Philippines uh, and wanted to uh, observe our uh, more traditional style of worship, our, our reflective style of worship. And so the reporter came and observed a few weeks. And in the article, when it came out, the writer could not believe that in a church we actually read the words of Scripture. That's got to be sad when churches today don't read the Word of God. There is power in the Word of God because it is the living Word of God. There is authority. It is the Word of God that changes life because the Spirit of God uses the Word of God. Gaylord Kambarami, the General Secretary of the Bible Society of Zimbabwe, was trying once to give a copy of the New Testament to a very belligerent man. The man said, sir, if you give me this New Testament, I'm just going to roll up the paper and use it to make cigarettes. Mr. Kambarani said, okay, I understand that, but at least take the Bible, and if you're going to make cigarettes out of it from the pieces of paper, at least read the pages of the New Testament before you smoke it. The man agreed. Apparently, paper was expensive in Zimbabwe at that time, and the two went their separate ways. Fifteen years later, true story, the two men met in a convention in Zimbabwe. The scripture-smoking pagan had, had been saved and was now a full-time evangelist, and he was there to share his testimony. He told the audience, I smoke through Matthew, and I smoked Mark, and I smoked through Luke. When I got to John 3, 16, I could not smoke anymore. My life was changed from that moment. Aren't you glad that God's Word is more than just words on a piece of paper? It is the living Word of God. Look at verse 36. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water, and he baptized him. Now, when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. When the scriptures were explained, there was a transformation of heart, and the Ethiopian believed, asked to be baptized as a public sign of his inward faith, and the Spirit of God, the Bible tells us, led Philip away, while the Ethiopian was full of joy. Note verse 8, full of joy. When men and women hear the gospel, they leave with joy. If you want to be a joy bringer in this world, if you want to bring joy, uh, not a temporary joy, but an authentic joy, Share the gospel. In the book of Acts, whenever people receive the good news, they were filled with joy. Final verse. My time runs up. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. The next time we see Philip, he's now in Azotus, modern-day Ashdod. He's traveling north along the coastal highway. And what's he doing? He's preaching Christ in all the cities until he came to Caesarea, 
where he settled down. It's as if for Philip, it was a way of life in which it should be for each one of us. You see, an effective evangelist makes telling Jesus a way of life. It's not that you evangelize one day and then you're off the next day, or you evangelize for a week as you're on a short-term mission, and then you come back and your job as an evangelist is, 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 is done. It's something so ingrained in your life that you can't stop telling people about Jesus. If it's a way of life for you, it becomes so natural to share about Jesus. It's no longer burdensome to you. You do it when it is an there's an opportunity. There's an old man I know in the Philippines personally. He's a Chinese man. He's got to be in his 90s now. He exemplifies this truth. He, he barely speaks the local language, which is Tagalog. He, his English is non-existent. But whenever he would sit next to a person on the train station or at the bus stop or at the mall waiting for his wife, uh, to shop, he would turn to the person next to him, and I, I, I've, I've literally witnessed this many a times. He would just turn to them and begin telling them in, in broken Tagalog, mixed in with Chinese, and I'm wondering how in the world does that person next to him understand what he's saying? Telling him about the Jesus in his life. But it is amazing how many men and women come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior because this man is willing to make witnessing as a way of life. I've seen it. I'm amazed. Here we gather our friends to eat food and share about politics and sports and business and school. Why is it so difficult to share them about the Jesus that we worship? I close with this illustration. There was a murderer in England. He was caught and was convicted for a crime. Waiting to be hanged, they sent him the obligatory religious pastor who, when he entered the cell, told him that he was going to hell, but it was not too late to repent. To which the murderer looked at the pastor and replied, you Christians live such comfortable lives you could not possibly believe in what you believe about hell. Because if I believe in the hell that you preach, I would crawl the length of England on broken glass just to witness to people with the hopes of saving them from this horrible place. What is the effort of our lives when it comes to sharing the good news? The world is destined for this place called hell. Your father, your mother, your grandparents, your brother, your sister, your sibling, your children, your friends, your neighbor, your spheres of influence that you interact with every day are destined to hell if they don't know Jesus. And if hell is really that bad and heaven is so wonderful, are we willing to make the effort to overcome our fear to share Christ with them? Are we willing to make the effort to be led by the Lord, sensitive to his leading to share Jesus with others? Are we willing to make the effort to be sensitive to the situation, to listen and to ask the right questions? Are we willing to put the effort in to know the scriptures more, to be effective evangelists? Are we willing to make witnessing as a way of life? If you don't, men and women, people are going to hell. May God's word challenge us to raise up this church to be effective evangelist. God bless you.